If you'll please take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're continuing our study. We come to a very familiar passage this morning. And I think a lot of times it gets taken out of context, um, especially at weddings and different situations, because it doesn't tell the whole context of why it was written. And so this morning we're going to be looking specifically at verses 21 through 33, but we're going to start back at verse 18 because it's actually one long sentence in the Greek and it actually sets the pattern for what we're going to be looking at. And so starting at verse 18 and following, and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with a word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, for he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. And because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that this refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Chuck Swindoll says in regards to this passage, this is an old-fashioned to many, Quaint to others, but downright ridiculous or even dangerous to a few. I was speaking to a counselor friend in regards to some marriage issues, and he gave me this quote from Desmond Tutu. He says, there comes a point where we need to stop just pulling people out of the river. We need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. Now, that's a reality that we need to come to Scripture and see why marriages get in trouble and what they're not doing so they don't fall into disrepair. See, it is God who knows all things, and He knows best. So we are called to articulate clearly, winsomely, and compellingly the biblical teaching about what it means to submit. And so that's what we're going to do here this morning. And so let's ask the Holy Spirit to lead that we might have ears to hear and that we would follow what God is about to teach us. Heavenly Father, again, we come to your word, and this is your word, and this is how you've set it up to be. And so, Father, you teach. Don't allow us to begin to look around to see if others are here so they might hear this. Don't let us elbow our spouses for them to pay attention. Father, may we have ears to hear. May we apply your word And as we apply it, may people see that there's something different about the gospel message. 
Father, truly change us to look like Jesus Christ this morning. This we pray in his powerful name. Amen. So again, before we get to the section of dealing with wives and husbands, we need to understand that this introduction from verses 18 through 21 really sets the standard and the pattern for our understanding for the next three weeks of sermons. And so as we begin this, we should be asking the question of what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Now, as we ask that question, I want to give you just a a representation here. A lot of people believe that being filled with the Holy Spirit is where God is this pitcher, and what he does is he comes and he fills us, but then we have this opportunity, and as we go out and as we do ministry, or we talk to people, or we send notes to people, we think that we're somehow giving away our aspect of the Spirit. So what needs to happen is the Holy Spirit needs to come back and fill us again. That's not the understanding. Probably the best example that I've ever seen is understanding. I know these are foreign to us in Florida, but they're gloves. And they're used for winter in most parts of our country. And it's there to protect. But what happens is we should really think is the Holy Spirit being the hand that moves the glove. Very different. So if the Holy Spirit is the one that moves and leads, if the glove becomes separated, it's just there. And you don't put both hands into each glove. The Holy Spirit leads both individuals in these relationships that we're about to talk about. And so when you have the Holy Spirit leading and guiding, those work together. And it does what it's supposed to do. And so there's a feeling, a filling of the Holy Spirit. And when we have the filling of the Holy Spirit, he begins to influence us. It says in the scripture very clearly, either we get drunk or we're filled. Now, both have somewhat of the same effect because we see when people get drunk, they get bold, right? It's a thing called liquid courage. And you can find the person who all of a sudden is this meek and mild person wants to fight everyone or tell everyone exactly what they really think about them. Now, we're supposed to be filled with the Spirit, and so when we are filled with the Spirit, we're also supposed to be bold, but we're supposed to be bold in regards to Christ turning the world upside down. So we have this influence of the Holy Spirit, and the influence of the Holy Spirit, if he's leading us, he gives to us then a pattern in the scripture of what we're to follow. So we see in verses 18 through 21 that it's a pattern of submission, ultimately. And so you have this fellowship, you have worship, you have gratitude, but then you also do have submission. And it gives it in a pattern of wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. Now, again, we look at it from this perspective when we look back on this and go, well, this seems to be out of date. The time that this was written, wives, children, and slaves had no rights, had no value. They were property. So what Paul was saying at this point was radical and countercultural. And so we need to make sure that we understand what it is, the pattern that God is setting out for us for these next few weeks. And he says we're supposed to be in a pattern of submission. How? To one another. To one another. Philippians 2 says this. Let me get there. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Christ is saying through his example that we are to, out of our reverence for him, this is how we are to live to one another. So we start to ask the question, so why are there problems? Why are there quarrels? James 4.1 says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? If not this, that your passions are at war within you. See, we struggle because we want to be number one. We fight for our rights. We fight for, I am right. We fight for, notice me, who's not doing things for me? John MacArthur gives this quote, someone who is spirit-filled doesn't fight for the top, he fights for the bottom. See, if we are spirit-filled, or if we're being led by by the Holy Spirit, then our desire would be for that of others to be ministered to. Now, how does that happen? It happens by the power of the Holy Spirit because the reality of our situation is if we're not Christians, then it's impossible for loving this way. Impossible. We don't have the opportunity or the desires to do this. I can give you example after example after example of how men have abused women. I can give you example after example after example just in the study of how women despise their husbands. And so it's only when the Spirit fills us that we begin to experience supernatural grace ourselves, but then it allows us to give supernatural grace. And we have to give it to one another, again, out of reverence for Jesus. We see we are to suffer for Jesus. We're supposed to stand for his principles. We're supposed to support his people. All of those things are what we're called to do. John Stott says this about three relevant truths from this passage. It's about the dignity of all people. It's about equality that we have before God. The scripture tells us that. But there's also the unity of believers. So we have this understanding of this is going to be the the basis for how we go forward in the next three weeks. But we have to also remind ourselves that it's not just a simplistic set of rules. Thankfully, God didn't come in here and tell us, this is who needs to do the dishes, or this is who should drive the car. This is who should take out the garbage. He doesn't do that. Why? Listen to what Brian Chapel has to say. Each has a responsibility for the other. What? To note that this goal of wholeness before God is emphasized in Scripture far more than any specific set of behaviors. Every couple will have difficulty um, in personalities, differing gifts and situations, and we're not obligated to some simplistic set of rules that determines who takes out the garbage, who washes the dishes, or how many hours outside of the home a spouse may work or play without causing some biblical threshold of marital correctness. The responsibilities of marriage are determined at the deepest levels of the Christian heart and call for the most diligent, honest, and conscientious questions of self-examination. 
The husband not only must ask, am I leading my family to a better knowledge of God, but also is my leadership self-serving or sacrificial? The wife must summarily ask, not only do my actions, words, and attitudes enable my husband to lead my family to a better knowledge of God, but also have I truly in everything submitted my life to this highest priority. See, when we have Christ and he is filling us, again, our desire becomes for others and not self. And so he wants to unpack this with us. And the first thing he does is he tells husbands to love their wives. Now, again, we, when we talk about headship, we need to understand that, again, people have tried to say, well, the head of the person in this situation is a source of the woman. That's not how scripture is written. It does talk about headship, but the most of this passage you see focuses primarily on the husband. So headship conveys a sense of taking responsibility for that which God commits to one's care. It requires Christ-like love. Now again, does this have to deal with authority? Yes. Make no mistake, this has everything to deal with authority. But... Please understand this, and especially men, listen to what I'm about to say. It does not mean you get to abuse your authority. You do not get the opportunity to become a dictator. And there are many who have looked at this passage and abused people, and specifically wives and children and employees, because they are in charge. So it doesn't give us a right to be a dictator and abuse our authority, but it also doesn't allow us abdication. For there are others who look at this passage and said, I'm the head of the family, so I'm just going to have the wife do everything. And they abdicate their authority. They abdicate their role. Both are unbiblical. And so God calls us to be the head of the family. Now, how does he tell us to do that? He tells us with the iron fist. No. He says, you are to love your wife. So you have the situation where it's not eros, it's not a a physical kind of love, it's agape love. And agape love is one that seeks the highest good of the other, even at the price of one's own comfort, safety, and benefit. So what does that love look like? Well, if we go back to how Christ loves us, we'll find out that love is sacrificial. It's selfless. It's giving up what was considered to be ours. Remember what Christ does for us? He gives up his heavenly glory. He becomes impoverished. He washes his disciples' feet. He suffers on the cross. And that's what he tells us as men. Are you giving yourself sacrificially, selflessly to your wife and to others? Don't think because you're not married or your husband's gone or your wife's gone or you've been divorced or whatever that you get to check out on the sermon. It's to one another. It's a selfless love. And we have to ask ourselves, how are we giving ourselves to others around us? And so Christ gives us an example of, of selfless love, but he also, uh, sacrificing love, but he also gives us a sense of sanctifying. 
Now this is, again, it's a divine value. It's where we get to build them up. We never should be breaking down our wives. We should never be having our wives ever question whether they're good enough or they could survive without us. We should be building up both the inner as well as the external beauty of our spouses. We should be putting them in the place where God put them. And it says that it happens this way by the word of God. Now, this is probably a place where it steps on toes, because I know I don't fulfill this all the time. Is the word of God even present in our homes? Are we ensuring that its witnesses there? Are we having family devotions? Are we praying together? Are we concerned about one another? Are we encouraging one another? Are we taking the scripture and building one another up? And I know sometimes that can be hard. But here's the thing. God says, if you haven't been doing it, start now. God can forgive us for all the things we haven't done. We can still have plenty of time moving forward. And so he tells us we're supposed to be washing with the word. Kent Hughes says this. Is our wife more like Christ because she is married to us? Or is she more like Christ in spite of us? Men, we have to ask that question. Is my spouse, my specific wife, more like Christ because I'm in the picture? Or do I detract? And if you can't say yes, then again, we need to confess. We need to go to God. We need to make sure that we're filled with the Spirit. So that when we get things in the right perspective, then we love in the right perspective. So we have a sacrificial, we have a sanctifying, but we also have a caring love. Let me give you the story of Robertson and Morel McQuilkin. Uh, Robertson was the president of Columbia Bible College, and he found himself, his wife was getting into Alzheimer's. And so what she would get nervous when he wasn't there. And so they only had a short walk from their house to Columbia Bible College. And so she would get out and she would walk that one mile there and back every day trying to find him and be comforted by him and sometimes up to 11 times a day and it got to the point where Robertson came home and as he was taking off her socks to put her into bed he saw that her feet were bloodied because she had gone after him so many times so what does he do he quits his job at Columbia Bible College so that he might care for his wife the story started to spread and I can tell you this He's had more influence because of how he cared for his wife than he ever did being the president of a Bible college. Marriages have been healed. People have come to Christ because they've heard of his care for his wife. But for him, he did it as to the Lord. So we have this sanctifying, caring, but it's also the love that God has to us in Christ is unbreakable. See, most of our world tries to find love with feelings or emotions, and that becomes our foundation. And when that becomes your foundation, it becomes a place where it falls apart very quickly. That's why people have their prenuptial agreements. That's why people say, well, I'm in this as long as you make me feel happy. Now, if you've been married for any length of time, how long does that last? 
two sinful people coming into a relationship where, again, you could be the most hurtful or the most edifying. And so God calls us to come together. And he says this to us, those wedding vows that we gave to each other, those wild promises made before God, are they unbreakable? Like his love for us. See, they're not words. They're vows. And they mean something. And so we should be asking, God, please allow us to love our wives the way Christ loved the church. And when that happens, he gives to us another example. He doesn't leave us there. He also tells us about becoming one. Because he knows this about men. We love ourselves. And so what he tells us, he says, I want you to love your wives as your own bodies. Now let me give you an illustration of a deflated basketball Can you play with a deflated basketball? No. You can't play with just a half a basketball filled with only half air. It's got to be filled completely. And when it's filled completely, then what happens is there's supposed to be a development within that relationship. And so what happens is there's a personal development, finding the real me. Even in the midst of damage, everybody here has baggage that you've brought from your life. Everybody. Even the little kids. You Remember, you found out pretty quickly, in, even being a little kid. I remember like wearing Miss um, Nothing Matched on me, and I was wearing cowboy boots with no socks and a tank top with Batman on it with shorts that didn't match and stuff like that. And I didn't care. Right until somebody goes, ew, that's ugly. What? I'm ugly? That doesn't match. You aren't wearing your animals. animals? What the heck is that? I can't even afford underwear. I have to have hand-me-downs. So we go through this process, and so we get in this, this thing where, again, all of us have to have someone who helps us, points us back to the Savior. Now, please understand this. You're not the Savior, And if you go into a relationship thinking, I'm going to fix this person or I'm going to fix this situation, you're in for a long haul because you can't do it. But you sure can point them to the Savior. And so again, the spouse should be someone that goes and allows, for me, it's the perspective that Christina has to come and say, hey, just because your dad walked away, that's not you. Hey, just because you were felt or made to feel worthless, just because your, your, your dad didn't take care of you, that's not you. And she has to be there pointing me back to Christ. And when I'm pointed back to Christ, what happens is there's supposed to be a spiritual development. The Bible tells us that we're supposed to find out how wide, how long, how deep, how much of the love of my Savior do I grow in. See, and we as people should be doing that for one another. We should be pointing each other back to Christ. Are you growing in him? Do you understand how much he loves you? How long and how wide he is for you? That he's never a place that you could ever be where he doesn't forsake you. He's always there. And we have to be truly satisfied in that. And that alone. And then we're able to begin to love others. 
And so we're supposed to love each other with our own bodies, but we are supposed to become one, which means one plus one equals one. Which means the person and the people around you, but specifically your wife's husband, should become the second highest priority. Not parents, not kids, not your job, not even the church. Spouse. And as we put it in the right priority, then here's part of the thing that we need to remind ourselves. We need to know our wives intimately. One pastor said, he's asked many uh, couples of 50 years of marriage, and he was asking them, what's your wife's favorite hymn? And you know what the majority of the men said? I don't know. 50 years of marriage, and they don't know their wife's favorite hymn. Let alone, what's the color of her eyes? What's the nuances when she gets angry? How does she laugh? What about her smile? How does she do her little twitches? How do you know you're in trouble when she doesn't speak a word? Are we knowing our wives intimately? And here's one thing that I tell every couple. Keep dating each other. I don't care how old you are. I don't care what the date looks like. Are you growing in the knowledge and in the appreciation and the love for your wife? And if it's not, then repent. Bring her lots of flowers. Bring her chocolate. Bring her whatever she likes. Ask for forgiveness and show her how much you love her. It's not too late. Then God turns some of our stuff to the wives. He does tell us wives, we are to be about giving duty, devotion, and ultimately respect to our husbands. So in regards to devotion and the duties that God has given to us, again, Brian Chappell says this, women who believe in the authority of the word understand that they are to submit. They don't fight it. And you hope that you're in a relationship where you don't have to. But we are called to a devotion, and specifically in the passage, to her own husband. Not to every husband. To her own husband. Which again means that your relationship's going to be different than everybody else's. But as we give devotion to that husband, please understand this. You also, in this day and age, most people in this room, if not all the people in this room, have voluntarily gone into marriage. Which means this. Hopefully, especially you young women, hopefully you're seeing the man already do this. And if he's not... Get rid of them. I'm telling you, you do not want to go through a situation where you get married because you want to get married. You want to be in a marriage where you see the example of the man loving his wife. 
And then again, maybe some of you need to repent. I haven't been that. But again, men, is this a woman that you're dating or that you're married to that is willingly going to support you? And so we have this devotion that we're called to because it becomes, it should become a delight. Now again, this does not mean that just because you're not always happy with your husband, that again, you can just simply walk away or I'm not going to obey. It's not a quid pro quo thing. The Bible didn't set up, if the husband does this, then you can respect him. One of the greatest examples that I ever saw of this was in the first church where I was a youth pastor, and there was a man who was a jerk. A jerk to his wife and a jerk to his children. And there were men that talked to him about it, but that wife, truly amazed me, never once talked bad about her husband. Not once. Always found herself saying the good things about her husband. I mean, he almost ran them into bankruptcy multiple times. She never wavered. And the reason why she never wavered, and I remember this very clearly, she says, because it's to the Lord. See, our marriages are microcosms of the gospel, or they should be, which means that all of us should be delighting, trusting, and following God. And as we're doing that, and again, if we get it right vertically, then we get it right horizontally. And so it gives us this opportunity to to not rob the husbands of respect. She never belittled She never robbed him. So for that, she receives what the Bible says is dignity. See, there's a splendor even in regards to submission. The Trinity, my goodness, the Trinity is our prime example. Three persons who are equal, but still have separate roles. Jesus submits to the Father. And he does so willingly. Now, again, sometimes I think women are the worst people to other women. Some of the examples that I saw in here, one woman talked about the example of she was attacked because she was working outside of the home and not raising her kids. But then when she stopped and was at home, then other people attacked her from the other side. It's never good enough. Here's the reality. You don't have to live up to anybody else's standard. And again, we're here last week, a couple weeks ago or whatever, and I told up, and kids, plug your ears, because Pastor Jeff's going to say a bad word. If you don't look to encourage one another, shut up. Shut up. We are to be about building each other up. And so the only thing that the woman has to worry about is fulfilling her biblical responsibility. 
And that she talks with, with her husband. And when that happens, she becomes a woman of excellence. This is where you go to Proverbs 31. Now again, Proverbs 31 isn't put there for women to feel beat up. It's not to beat you up. This isn't a job description in Proverbs 31. It's a husband's response to take the Hebrew alphabet and write down exactly how his wife fulfilled. He wants to tell everybody about his wife and how excellent she is. And that's a great thing. Men, go to the alphabet and write down everything for every letter that your wife fulfills. And as you get older, make it more intimate and more specific. But write down what are 26 attributes of your wife that you want other people to know. You want to hear some from, Psalm, from Proverbs 31? Listen, she makes a safe home. She's trustworthy and dependable. She has a good attitude. She's loving, open, and honest. She's content. And let's make a caveat here. There was an example, and I just want to bring this up. A woman said, I want my husband home more with the kids and with me. And so one of the ladies that she talked to about said, that's great. I agree with that. Will you take a loss of income? And the wife said, no. She said, well, then don't ask for your husband to be home more. But the Proverbs 31 woman is content. She's patient and forgiving. She's industrious. She's a counselor. She brings correction. She has inner beauty. She pursues God and his glory. She builds loyalty. She's grateful. She's thankful. She's confident. Men, this is a husband talking about his wife. You talk and encourage your wife. Love her the way she should be loved. And when this happens, then this is what happens. This comes from some of the women authors in regards to this passage. And they said, this is what happens in regards to respect. They said, it starts to change your thoughts. Because the question is, what springs to mind when you think of your husband? What springs to mind? And are they good, pleasing, God-honoring thoughts? What are the words? How do you speak to your husband? But not only do you, how do you speak to your husband, how do you speak about your husband to others? And then thirdly, what are the deeds? What do your actions communicate to your husband and for your husband? As we come to a close on this passage, again, I can't say everything. Nor has anybody ever arrived. But I can tell you this, there's no relationship that's hopeless. And not just in marriage relationships. I'm talking about all relationships. If we are being filled with the Holy Spirit, then we will submit one to another out of reverence for the Lord which means there is nothing that we can walk through or nothing so bad that could ever rip our relationships apart. You know what happens when there's a fracture in your body? 
It gets stronger through the healing. That's the joy and the hope we have to look forward to. So strive. Men, love your wives. Women, respect your husbands. Everyone, submit in reverence to the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, as we come to your word, Lord, now we allow the Holy Spirit to come and minister to us. Lord, for those of us who have been convicted, let us repent. Let us confess our sins first to you and then to those around us. But Lord, then you bring about restoration. Lord, you repair those relationships. Lord, for those who are young and preparing to go into these relationships, Lord, may they do so with eyes wide open seeing the joy of the marriage that is set before them, Lord, that they wouldn't be like the culture, but they would be counterculture and loving in such a way that it brings you glory and honor. Lord, allow us to love and respect one another, and definitely, Lord, let us submit to one another, but in the proper perspective, out of reverence for the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, you heal, you restore, you put things the way there should be in the biblical, proper perspective. And then, Father, I know that as people see relationships, whether they're relationships in the church or in the marriages or in the parents and the children or employees and employers, Lord, as they see our relationships, they would be drawn to you because there's something different. And that difference is the gospel. So, Father, thank you that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life that we could never live to give to us a perfect righteousness we could never earn. And he gives to us the power of the Holy Spirit to live out these commandments to love and to respect as only you have done perfectly. So, Father, change us. Change us, please, to look more like our Savior by the power of the Holy Spirit, to give all glory and honor to the Father in heaven above. And all God's people said, Amen.